I sometimes go and sit with an old friend, Father John, who runs an ashram in, in Warburton. It's got seven acres on the riverbank and with a bench seat. We'll sit on that bench seat and just talk. And it would be whatever he wants to talk about. And it could be anything from uh, is there a God to uh, is, there, is there a future, the climbing of the, the hills around him, anything. Or it might just be half an hour's silence. Silence is fine. But silence is what you should give to a 21-year-old because that's the only thing he hears. I'm Ren McDonald, and this is The Hope Initiative, a show dedicated to learning about humans on planet Earth, where I speak with everyday people to find moments of success and struggle in their life to help inspire hope in yours. Hello and welcome to The Hope Initiative. My name is Rin MacDonald. Thank you for joining me for what is episode number 92 with Morris Esmond. As you'll soon come to hear and learn, Morris is a man not short of a story. Born in New Zealand, Morris came to Australia in his 20s and with his wife Anne, they raised four children. He has lived an incredible life, made a quarter of a million dollars at a very young age 50 years ago and shares many stories, some quite touching and some delightfully humorous. It was a pleasure to chat with him and I am sure I will have more conversations, whether it is casually like we did or in the cricket nets at a local park. Thanks again to Morris and I hope you enjoy. It's going to turn my watch off. Does that mean time stands still? In case it beeps, does now, yeah, 2pm, bang on. You were early as well. Oh, well. Thank you. It's, it's the habit of a lifetime. Since I missed a critical flight once in my life, and I've never been forgiven for it. Wow. Well, Morris Esmond, welcome to the Hope Initiative. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here in my home today, across from where we met, across the road somewhat, here in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. Yes, we met when you were misusing a cricket net. <laughs> yes. What was your recollection of, of that day or that instance? Uh, there'd been a previous uh, commentary a week earlier as to how these grid marks had been created on a cricket pitch. Uh, we didn't think that the groundsman had been attempting to mow artificial grass. That would have been beyond his remit. So we hadn't been able to work it out until we saw you on the subsequent Saturday, Sunday, Saturday mm-hmm. when you were pulling via your hips a uh, milk crate. And I thought it was an unusual. First of all, I thought that she would look around for the cart <laughs> and realised that it was not milk you were hauling. It was, in fact, rocks. Mm. And uh, you, in trying to pull this uh, weight, ostensibly for the purposes of building your hip movements, I imagine, or your upper thigh muscles. Yeah. I can only imagine, other than perhaps a stint as a porn star, why a man would need to build up his thigh muscles. <laughs> it was actually for the knees, believe it or well, not. the knees. Yes. 
maybe the porn stars could could do it as well for that. Okay, the so, thighs and the hips. Well, I never thought of you. I thought I never thought of you as a Denise person. A Denise. What's that mean? <laughs> well, it's the way the British pronounce Denise. Denise. Yeah, as in the girl's name. Right. I've always been amused by the Brits' way of pronouncing it as Denise. Denise. Yeah, which is much the way the black people refer to their outer extremities. Yeah, right. <laughs> Denise to hips. Denise to hips. Uh, yeah. There you go. Yes. Jumping over to fence. <laughs> you're, you're full of these one-liners. I love it. No, no, not really. It was just that was a visual impact we first had. And then you did your party trick. Yeah, the party trick that I don't think I've been able to do since then. Well, right. you were very impressed. Um, Francis was extraordinarily impressed with this Beckham impression where <laughs> a man with one stroke of the ball could bend it about 25 degrees and put it into the back of his his uh, his, his vehicle yep. with one shot. And now that I'm here in your home, I have queried why you even took a vehicle to the park <laughs> only across the road. <laughs> yeah, it's The only... irony of a man taking... Public tra- or taking transport to get fit <laughs> when he lives close enough to walk there and improve his condition. Yeah, no, it's a good it's a good query to to explain that uh, activity. It wasn't for yeah the hip thrusts; it was for the knees. So I was doing a thing called reverse out knee pain, which is part of a group called Athletic Truth Group, and it's the idea of walking backwards and dragging something heavy. So yeah, the milk crate was just my version of making that a sled, if you will. And I was dragging that backwards on on the cricket pitch and causing all the like little black rubbery things to, to come yes. up, which was the tracks. But yeah, to, to tell you why I drove was because it's too heavy to carry over. Easy to drag, but didn't want to carry it, you know, albeit a couple of hundred meters. Well, I drove it in the back of the Jeep. <laughs> well, I don't need those sort of weights. I've just got a, the baggage of the past to carry. <laughs> and that's enough to keep all the body working and functioning. Amazing. Can't jettison the past. Can't jettison no. the past. Well, I'm keen to uh, get into some of the baggage of the past, if you don't mind. <laughs> but thank you for for that rundown. And yes, that's, that is how we met. And a couple of times, well, you were there that day bowling and, and having, having a crack at the... Uh, the cricket bat and smacking a few balls around with your mate Francis, and I think there was one other gentleman there. Yes, Gary, who's the itinerant in life, the man in his late sixties, who's who's dysfunctional, a Bedouin, who's currently in Thailand, asked to impregnate a, a local. Wow. He's allocated thirty days for the task. <laughs> this is unbelievable. Her first name is Eve, and I've always referred to her as his Eve of Destruction. <laughs> Amazing. He said to me that he expects me to assist in the, if there is a child uh, issue from the loins, uh, he's asked that I contribute to the, to the child, bringing up the child, because he thinks I have more recent experience in doing these sorts of things than he has. Right. He hasn't done it for 35 years. Okay. That's the problem, you see, when you disentangle yourself late in life and you you, you start to engage with new people mm. and they take over your agenda and in the end you have no choice. Right. So he's a man at this stage I can't communicate with. He's told me he'd be absent for at least 30 days. I imagine that the task, if not fulfilled, may have to be extended. <laughs> Maybe. 
Maybe, but enough about him. I would love to know about you and your life, but that's how we met at those cricket nets. Part of the community that appears from time to time, and sometimes Francis and I play by ourselves. Yeah. Sometimes there are others. Yeah. And we always try and inveigle strangers into acting as fieldsmen. <laughs> you do it well. You got me to bowl a few times and and return a few balls. I'm, well, not, I'm not very good at bowling. Well, Francis is 75 and he struggles and he, he quite likes the modern game in England where the over's been reduced from six balls and over to five. He thinks that's more suitable for him now. Is it really? Yes. There you are. He's 75? He's 75. And then how old, how old are you? 71 this year. 71 this year. Yeah. Has, have you had your birthday yet? It's coming up. No, no, no. I don't count them anymore. Others remind me, <laughs> much to my chagrin. <laughs> oh, amazing. I, I gave up thinking about birthdays after 21. Mm. They were an artificial measurement of the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would love for you to somewhat begin, as we are essentially strangers. I know very little about you other than a few a few stories here and there that we've shared maybe in yeah, three or four meetings at these cricket nets. But if you could start with your earliest memory and if you could bring us forward to present day, we're recording this in August 2022. And I like to restrict people, and you may struggle with this because I, I can tell you love a, love a story, but that's totally fine, to three to four minutes. So the, the key points that immediately come to mind, starting with that earliest memory, and then I'll, I'll pick from there. But I'm not going to cut you off if you, if you run longer than those few minutes. So over to you, Morris. My very earliest memory of life was falling down the stairs when I was possibly two or three years of age. Wow. No memory after that until my first day at school when I sat or knelt on a tack and it entered my knee and I was deeply upset and the nun, who was my teacher in my first year at school, offered me no solace. And I learned from that moment forth that the clergy was superfluous to life. <laughs> So I was at age five. Age five, yes. Yeah. And after that, so my commitment to the Catholic Church waned somewhat. Mm. And it's been, I've been the female in the dance relationship ever since. I've kept moving backwards. <laughs> so religion wasn't for you then from an early age? No, I was prevailed upon as was, I was brought up in New Zealand and, yeah. and the small town of Timaru. And it was, there was a keenness that one member of each family uh, joined the church uh, and I was prevailed upon because I wrote at that time, even at that young age. I was, uh, in my early teens, I was a writer for the Maris Messenger. Oh. And uh, they sent an emissary down from Wellington to persuade me and I said to him at the time I wouldn't be joining because there was already a member of our street, Michael McManus, at uh, number 58 off the street, was already in the priesthood, and they, wasn't, they weren't going to get anyone from 52A off the street. <laughs> so I demurred. Right. And uh, whilst I've had, I had some of the greatest, I had my Mr. Chips going through school with a couple of them were Catholic priests, and I revered the, uh, the contribution one <clears throat> One of them was a slightly Maori. Uh, he identified as Maori, yeah, and he certainly had all the, the uh, attributes of um, languidness, 
and, and it's just a need to sleep most afternoons, a laziness in the classroom, but he did one thing really well. And that was he taught 40 boys for two years using Reader's Digest word power games. There were only two boys who ever got anything out of it, and I was one of them. And it built my language skills from possibly 50 or 60 words that age to tens of thousands. Mm. I never forgot one, and I'm forever grateful for Father Donald Hamilton. Another priest was took us mountain climbing. I mean, those were the days where today you look at priests and think they're all pedophiles. This was a man, Bill Leeming, who took four of us and climbed in the Southern Alps for four days. Mm. Climbed Mount Olivia, Mount Kitchener. They were both between eight and 9,000 feet. And we lived in the youth hostel and he cooked for us and it was a wonderful time. So there are memories yeah. uh, of priests. There are even memories of being a, an altar boy, which was wonderful. The starch on the altar, on the... On the on the curtain rail, as I used to call it, but it's just the, the bib that covers the, the whole section. Right. I used to like getting to the end of it. It was about 30, 35 feet long. And if you gave it a certain flick in a certain way, you could make it barrel like a wave. <laughs> and the whole thing, you, know, you almost got a standing ovation from reprobates in the congregation who appreciated the artistic skill as for those, but that was really for those who weren't inured by the occasion and you know, communicating with God. I was more one who was communicating with those who couldn't quite see him. Mm. Interesting. So sc school was fun. Mm. Sport, sport was excellent. Yeah. I mean, I've got a lot of gratitude for the fact that it, it was an impoverished town. Mm. Uh, we were recently, well, we were. Always had a roof over our head and three meals a day, including a maize pie. But uh, it was a poor district, and uh, we we never had a car until at least I was sixteen. Yeah, we didn't have television, but they were happy, happy days. Yeah, and uh, I remember them with great fondness, and. Uh, it taught me the, 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 the certain simplicity in life. The biggest disappointments growing up in a small impoverished town was when Saturday came along for sport and it looked like it was about to rain and every adult conspired over the telephone to say we were going to be cancelling. And it was absolutely heartbreaking to have a game of cricket or rugby cancelled. And they were the only real disappointments. I mean, I, I didn't mind the broken bones. I didn't mind life's disappointments. But to have a game of sport cancelled was just something all too hard to bear. I know that feeling well from yeah my days growing up playing soccer since I was nine. <laughs> For you, what was that early life like? You mentioned there priests at the school, it wasn't a boarding school? Was no, it just a standard, no, no. standard primary school? No, we just, we were lucky enough to live within 400 metres of the school, so it was bicycling or walking. Yep. So then that was the way we got around, and that's all it was. Yeah. We even, at one stage there, we had to fundraise for the priests because they were moving 
digs were going to a new presbytery and they wanted a hi-fi system, <laughs> which was going to cost $800, which was an enormous sum of money. Wow. So all the kids agreed that they would somehow come together and raise the money to present this to the brothers, the Morris brothers, Brother Sylvester. And uh, we used to go down to the Caroline Bay and collect bottles because in those days you got a redemption fee for each bottle and each biscuit tin from Allsbrooks. You got three shillings for each Allsbrooks tin and you got one or two pennies returned for the bottles. And uh, even though we didn't have a car, we had a garage. It was full of bottles awaiting collection and payments. <laughs> and we believe that our contribution to that $800 hi-fi was about $600. Wow. When you say we, was this? My brother and I. Your brother and yourself? Yes. Wow. Yes. Phenomenal effort. 75% of the hi-fi system. We used to bring it home from the Caroline Bay in a, it's what's called a Dobbin. Okay. Dobbin is just a, a cart. Okay cart with wheels that my father had made. Yeah. We would just stack them as high as we could get them without breaking any <laughs> and wheel it home every day. Amazing. You use even that word Dobbin there, you used superfluous before, and there are quite a few others, obviously with the large vocabulary from that first man, I forget his name, but you said Reader's Digest. He... Yeah, Reader's Digest used to run a, a thing called a word power game. Yeah. And all it was was that you'd get a word and you'd be given six synonyms and you had to guess what was the meaning of the word from one of those synonyms. Right. And it was just a deductive process because I, I did do Latin yep. and French and English. And so there were some advantages in working the, the derivatives of words and intuitive guesses. But in the end of the day, it's just memory. Mm. I mean, if you have an interest in something, it's just memory. Yeah, right. But the importance of understanding those words, like you, you say you're breaking them down from, from six synonyms and one of them being correct. The technique is then you've got to use that word in real life sometime in the next week, yeah. language or usage and some or writing. Yeah. And, and it stood the test of time. I had an incident in recent years where my daughter's marriage broke up. And she, you know, we were estranged at the time. She was a prat, difficult to manage. And she was just a difficult, acerbic, didactic, argumentative, negative, upper self, narcissistic individual. Wow. Otherwise, she was lovely. <laughs> and she was a pain in the proverbial. But uh, I mean, she had a child, her first child, and the first child was suddenly without a father who decided upon the birth that, that he had enough, he didn't want this relationship anymore, so he walked out. Oh. So she was left with a child and by herself, so she came to live with me. So Anne and I looked after her and young Josh for the first three years of his life. Wow. So we used to sit in the backyard, and I've written a little book, it's just for him, it's called The Boy Who Lived in His Forest. And it's just the story of those first three years in which he learned about all of the people that we live with. We live with bats. I mean, these are all of the people I'm about to outline who don't pay rent. <laughs> so he lived with the bats and he lived with the foxes. 
and he lived with the minor birds and learned to hate them as much as I do for the, the bullies. Uh, the rats, the occasional rat, uh, the possums, which infested the place until we brought the owls in and talked to the foxes and we've now evened up the balance. The kookaburra that kept taking his fish from the pond. And we would sit there many mornings and out in the, under the, in the forest, which is all the trees, 60 or so trees and bushes and shrubs, and I taught him how to talk to the crows. The crows finally have got occupation in most of the high trees, for we've driven out the minor birds with unusual techniques. Minor birds, for anyone who's listening and doesn't understand what a minor bird is, M-Y-N-A, it's a rodent in the sky. It's a bully. They work in packs and they really make the life of other birds impossible. They drive them out, take the food, take over the nests and kill the eggs. They're wow. dreadful people. Okay. And speaking to them hasn't worked. <laughs> They're impervious to, th- to, to being spoken to. They have no ration, rationale. And they're not decent people. So you, so you wrote this book for Josh. Yes. As his grandson. Yes. That love of writing. I think you mentioned you, you started out as a young age from a, as a writer. Where, where do you think that came from? Where am I writing? There's no antecedents. There's no one in the family. There's no tradition. Mm-hmm. It, it was just simply one of those things that um, I, I grew to love. I had a, a nun who was a cousin sister who wrote um, a history of, uh, of a small township called Waipori, mm. which has now disappeared under the waters of a dam. Most of the electricity in New Zealand is still hydro. Yeah. So where I was born, there was a series of lakes and dams, and they've simply, and she wrote the, the history of the little township called Waipori, and the book was Waipori Whispers, but there's no one else in the family that's, it was just simply a love of entomology, lexicography, words, their origins, their use. And even today, I mean, I'm, there are, the modern usage drives me nuts. Mm. Communication skills are so poor. And you're left getting an email from someone and you have to then discuss it with the third party <laughs> to arrive at a, a consequence or an outcome. Yeah. Uh, so the crispness of language is gone. Mm. But uh, I've always been a great fan of crisp writing. You know, probably the most, the best ex- exemplar of it worldwide is, is Hemingway. Right. I've always used the example that if to try and teach anyone to write, it's just the cat jumped over the dog. All facts, no adjectives, no embellishment, no opinion, no byline, no photograph, just simply anonymity. The writer should be invisible and speak through the the actual use of language and the words. And that's why it's important to communicate. I taught Josh to communicate with crows just by talking, doing the crow call. So it was, ah, 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 ah. And they would talk back. Yeah, well. We talked to magpies and encouraged them to stay. So even during swooping season, they leave us alone. Mm. So you can have 
uh, a relationship and a language with others. I mean, even the minor birds who we've managed to keep at bay through the astute use of a tennis racket and gravel. <laughs> even the other birds realise I'm attacking the minor bird to drive them off to leave everyone else at peace. So I'm the Praetorian guard. He's even understood that. So it's a matter of teaching balance. It's, it's, it's teaching the fact that at the end of the day, life can only live in a degree of harmony if all the participants are contributing equally mm. and have a similar philosophy. But so how do you deal with an element that doesn't and thrives on disruption and bullying and that was the way we deal with it, a tennis racket. When I walked out one day out the front gate, middle of winter, and uh, a person was walking in the park opposite and came across the road and caught me with the tennis racket in hand and said, are you looking for a game of doubles, sir? <laughs> I said, no, no, I have a purpose, a much higher purpose for my racket. <laughs> A much higher purpose, yeah. the minor birds. The minor birds. How do you know they weren't looking to, to help you? Oh, well, they recognise me. <laughs> okay. Oh, when I walk out to the back, nine times out of ten now, many years of, of, of attacking is now over. Yeah. It's a mere sight, and what they do is they chipper at each other mm. and they warn each other. They occasionally, it's a bit like Ukraine at the moment, they occasionally overfly the property. <laughs> but they're reluctant to wait, but they still occasionally send in the leader. Right. And the leader will come right in close as, close as he can to test the water, and I only need to walk out the back door and he departs. They, only, they, they live that long, or they have told generations? I don't know. Do I, I only had to kill one and put, <laughs> and put it on a plinth and speak to them in the trees about what would happen to anyone else who failed to recognise my rights to run the places I chose as a caretaker for the and beneficiary of the peace I was, but it also allowed others to thrive. Amazing. So you, you can speak to birds. You yes. had the crow call before. English, as we've established here in the first half an hour, you mentioned French and Latin as well. Yes. This knowledge or thirst for knowledge seemingly and in intelligence that I have observed, I'm sure people listening will have as well, what was that transformed into in your later years as, say, a teenager and, and young adult? Because you, you mentioned you grew up in, in New Zealand. We're now having this conversation in, in Melbourne, Australia. No, I, blanks. I, I went to university and did a degree in uh, a Bachelor of Arts initially, specialising in American history yep. and, uh, and Chinese history. Then I did a law degree. And upon the end of all of that, I made the decision that I wanted to go into business. It seemed like more fun. I wanted to make a coin, make a little bit of money. And so we started publishing business, which we built up over a period of two or three years. Yep. And then we sold it. Um, that stage, we also had a couple of other sidelines. We, it was 1974. So we ran a series of buses and uh, aircraft charters to the Commonwealth Games in Christchurch in 1974. Wow. Um, it was, we, we, got, we got a little bit lucky because it, so we hadn't sold any tickets from Timaru. 
we had 10 buses organised and there were 40 seats on a bus. We had 400 tickets. Wow. And we didn't sell one. So September, October, November, the games were in late January, early February. And so it looked like a disaster. We'd put all of our, pulled, my brother and I had pulled all our savings and purchased these tickets, 400 tickets. We had no money left. The travel agent who was known to us by the church was told us it was a hopeless task and no one wanted them. And so that was the end of that it appeared. But then there's a thing called fortuitousness in life. You sometimes don't realise that circumstances around you conspire to actually deliver you opportunity. So at that time, you may, you're too young to remember, suddenly there was an oil, the so-called oil crisis in the Middle East, mm-hmm. and everyone panicked about the price of oil. And in New Zealand, the leader of the Commonwealth Games, who was Ron Scott that year, they generally get a knighthood if you run the Commonwealth Games really well professionally and bring credit to, the, to your nation. It was traditional to be knighted. So Ron Scott was hanging out for his knighthood. And he had already informed the parliament at Wellington that every event was full. And so the oil crisis broke out over Christmas early in the new year, six weeks before the Games. And all the wholesalers in Australia, those days there were trans tours, Guthrie's, and a whole range of them used the force majeure clause in their contracts to give all their unsold tickets back to the Games Committee. Yeah. So they were left with tens of thousands of unsold tickets and they looked as if they had misled the New Zealand government. We had no money and suddenly my father went up to our local Caledonian Sports Day in the early days of January, and then an article on that day appeared in the Timaru Herald, which said that there was going to be massive road closures in Christchurch, the host city. It was going to be difficult to get into the city, and there was going to be lockouts of cars, part of security, part of need to manage belatedly, some of the uh, traffic regulations that had been imposed by the Christchurch Council. So suddenly, Timaruvians turned up and queued outside our friend's travel agency to buy the 400 tickets, and they went in three hours on one day, having not sold one ticket in the previous three to four months. So... We had a sellout, and we were sitting on a profit of $200 per bus, and for young students, that was the equivalent of us having not having to have a holiday job for that year and still funding ourselves for university for that year. Yeah, well, there's two and a half hi-fi units as well if you wanted to oh. double back into those earlier days of entrepreneurship. So we then rang Ron Scott and said, we might take some more tickets. Mm, I bet. He says... Well, I've got about 25,000 sitting here suddenly. I said, I've got no money. And he said, well, pay me seven days after the event. 
So I'll give you credit. Yeah. So we then went all around the South Island and organised buses from the Greymouth and Dunedin and Ashburton and Omaru. We organised, went to the one of the airlines, Mount Cook Airlines at the time, and we organised Hawker Siddeley aircraft to come out of Wellington. Yeah. And so on one day at the Games, we had 68 buses. So we made a quarter of a million dollars, which was an absolute fortune, just by fortuitously being in the right place at the right time and, and being able to save someone else from embarrassment. And Ron Scott got his knighthood. I was going to say, did he get his knighthood? Yes. What did he do for you? He waited to be paid. <laughs> he gave you those seven days and hopefully a handshake at least. He waited to be paid and he was paid. Wow. $2 for an adult ticket, $1 for a child. And you made a quarter of a million dollars, and this is in 1974? Yes. So you're, what, 21, 22 at the time? 21. 21. And how old's your brother? He was 19. Phenomenal. So- We then went about losing it over the next two years because we thought business was as easy. <laughs> yeah. How good's this? <sighs> Where else can we go and just fortuitously <laughs> find these things? Did you think it was fortuitous at the time, or did you- Because there's a part of me that thinks- you know, having a business and being set up, it, it enables you those opportunities. I think you mentioned it earlier, like just being there in the moment, if your skin is in the game, those opportunities will oh, come sure. to you if we, you're awake to them. We learned some hard lessons. Uh, the, the travel agent who was a, a relative by marriage, instead of charging 10 cents a ticket commission, invoked 10% and the difference was... 88 cents per ticket. So he wanted 98 cents a ticket, not 10 cents. Wow. So we learned very quickly that when you make a success of something, success has many fathers. Yeah. And they all came in trying to, wanting a pound of flesh and to carve out the, uh, to carve out the pie. Right. And so uh, I learned at that early age how to deal with, uh, he, he was uh, an uncle by marriage and very well known around town, H.J.R. Somerville. And so I went to my father. My father had worked for him after the war. Okay. So I told my father I wasn't happy. My father asked me just to leave it with him. And I said, well, if you don't fix this, I'm going round to see old Charlie and I'll belt the living cheeses out of him. That's the way I thought at 21, that you fix problems. Because I always remember playing rugby. Right. My father once said to me, very first lesson, son, when you play rugby, you run onto the field, you look at your opponent in the eye, and you hit him as hard as you can, and he'll leave you alone for the rest of the game. <laughs> so this is the lesson I then took into business, and I was asked to leave it with my father. And my father dealt with it behind closed doors and they backed down and they paid the full whack. Mm -hmm. But so there's always going to be animals at the carcass. There's, there's never a moment for, as I said, success has a thousand fathers. Failure is an orphan. <laughs> so your father then, tell me a bit more about him and perhaps your family life. You mentioned you've got one Brother, do you yeah. have any other siblings? Yes. Oh, I, uh, I buried a sister this year and couldn't make the funeral because we weren't allowed into New Zealand. 
sort of, you know, you know life goes on. We, uh, my father was um, married very late in life. He was 45 when he married and I was born when he was 50. Wow. Uh, he was six years away in the Eighth Army. So he he was part of the El Alamein attack. He was part of spending time in Egypt. He spent then time in Italy. And uh, when the war ended, he was then repatriated. It was three months over by boat, three months back by boat, and he was gone for six years. Wow. So he married my mother upon his return. And uh, I was told that there were three or four miscarriages before I uh, made it down the birth canal, reasonably intact. <laughs> okay. And then there were three other siblings. There was one boy and two girls. Yeah. And we shared bedrooms until we left home. Amazing. What were some of the memories from from early family life having... Uh, holidays were the, were the most interesting things. We, uh, we had a unique system in New Zealand for us, for all of us who had no money. Yeah. We would use the, uh, the Catholic organ, which was called the tablet, and you would advertise where you wanted to go, and someone would then respond wanting to go to your town. You would meet halfway. You would exchange the keys of the house, and you would occupy their house and wow. understand its rules. And uh, they would occupy yours, and that's the way you had holidays. Wow. Having breaks were parish picnics. We all piled down to the racked railway station, went 10 miles by steam train to Tamuka, had a lovely day out, then you all got back on the steam train and went home again. So it's the simplicity of that life. Yeah. It was a life in which you were known to everyone in all the surrounding streets, and your mother would call you home at dusk. Yeah, you were you roamed free. Mm. You had an extraordinary freedom, which no longer. I mean, I where I live is near Scotch College. You can't get out in the morning because of all the armoured personnel carriers <laughs> who are bringing the, these dunderheads to school and then picking them up in the afternoon. I remember once talking to a great coach, probably the greatest coach that's ever existed. Intelligent, intuitive man called Arthur Lydiard. Okay. And Arthur Lydiard was the greatest athletics coach in the last hundred years. And he was the father of that great crop of New Zealand middle distance runners, Peter Snell, Murray Halberg. I'm sorry, I don't know the names, but. And these were guys who, John Walker, these were guys who uh, understood and dominated. World racing. You go back to the Olympic Games from Rome, go forward from there, and look at all the middle distance running. They all came out of New Zealand. Right. Now, Arthur Lydia taught one technique, had one technique. He, after Bannister broke the four minute mile, mm. this, was a, uh, this was a coach who understood that you had to train and do at least 100 miles a week of forest running. So he taught that level of endurance, and that's what created it. And he was once asked after he retired and went to live in America. He was asked why modern Australia, New Zealand, UK and so on, and, and the US, why they would never win middle distance running ever again. 
Why was it dominated by Africa? And he had one intuitive, brilliant response. He said, you'll never compete with a kid who's run 20 kilometres to school in the morning and run 20 kilometres home in the afternoon just to go to school from the age of four, five, six, seven and eight. He's done that for half a life. You'll never beat them. When all we do is now pick up our children, cosset them in the back of cars and take them everywhere, they beck and call. And they just, they can train as much as they like, but they'll never have the skill set, they'll never have the, 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 the will to ever win and the mechanism by which they can do that. It's an interesting point you make, and I wouldn't have, wouldn't have thought of that. I definitely try to avoid peak hours for those exact reasons, though I can't imagine living next to a big school like Scotch College. But that idea of, yeah, 20 hours or, or 20, 20 kilometres rather, you know, to and from, oh, no, yeah. even just as an example, yeah. is, is putting in the work. And there's a concept of 10,000 hours that you might have heard of to, to yeah. sort of achieve mastery. But, yeah, that's... That's going along those lines, yeah. right? And, and, that, and that's the difference now. There are certain advantages and disadvantages. So we have to give up the concept that an Australian will ever again win a 1,500-metre race. So your grandson then, and, and maybe this is a question as well, because you mentioned you have a daughter. I'm not sure if you have other, other children, but what was life like raising at least your daughter and, and your grandson? How did you um, not that closet was- them? away from walking to school in the rain, perhaps? Well, of course, he's not. He's about to start to go to school next year. But I I had four children, all born in Australia, so they're all Australians. And so they are part of that belt that represents about 50% of the population in this country, which has parents who were born outside Australia. Yeah. Uh, we used to take them back regularly to New Zealand. So while their grandparents were alive, they would go and spend time on the farm. Uh, granddad had a sheep farm outside Waimati, a place called Lenavi. And so they used to enjoy going there. That was the time that um, you asked me earlier about why I'm on time. There was one occasion where all the children had been taken to New Zealand for Christmas. And my wife had gone in advance with them. I was due on over on Christmas Eve. And I had a habit of being too tight on time. And I arrived at the airport a little under pressure and I missed the flight. They wouldn't let me on. The ramifications of not getting into New Zealand on Christmas Eve is something that I've never been forgiven for by any party. The fact that Father Christmas arrived belatedly on Christmas Day is something that's been referred to and is an open and weeping sore that can never be repeated. (laughs) It makes it even funnier and no one's going to see this because this is purely audio, but you look like Father Christmas with all due respect. You have a beautiful white beard and the white hair. You're maybe not as portly as uh, old Father Christmas might be portrayed, but that's quite funny. So you brought presents over, but missed the flight. Missed the flight. Oh, no. So, I've, it's, and it's something that rankles today. It's not seen, it's not part of folklore. It's not been treated with any sort of forgiveness. Yeah. 
it still rankles. It's still, it's a bit like having gravel in your underpants. <laughs> so did your, your kids at the time, like how old were they? Oh, they were between the ages of two and ten. So very much in that age of Father Christmas is the real yeah. the real sausage dinner. Yes. And they woke up on Christmas Day bereft with flat stockings. So they, they, they were, there were many other times. I mean, I, we enjoyed um, holidays. We, I, I mean, I enjoyed um, dealing with authorities. I mean, there was one incident where my son, had scotch belted the bejesus out of another guy and, and injured him quite badly. And uh, I was called down to the school for they were going to, and this is a beautiful word that only the British will understand, they were going to rusticate him. Rusticate? Yes. I feel like I've heard of it. Can you define it? It's to be sent down or expelled. You would call it just okay. being tossed out. Yeah, right. But he was going to be rusticated. <laughs> And so I remember sitting in the headmaster's office and said to him at the time, don't worry, headmaster, because no one wants to take decisions these days in authority. No one's, everyone wants to handball difficulties. I said to the headmaster, I'll take care of this. Liam, come with me. So we drove home and I took him out the back and he said, am I in trouble? I said, just come for a walk. And I sat him down by the pool edge and said, you've just made one mistake. You left witnesses. Now, he'd been bullied. He had every right to retaliate. And even the man that he, or the boy that he attacked, is still a firm friend today. But the bottom line was the school wasn't interested in an argument. They weren't interested in balance. They weren't interested in facts. Not even courts are most of the time these days. Are involved in nuance and looking good. But it's a lesson that it was a practical lesson to teach a boy that he has a right to defend himself, but to do so with aplomb, do so with consideration, and to do so uh, in a way that's not going to exacerbate the situation. Yeah. So what then happened? Was he, was he expelled? No. No, no he, uh, he probably looks back at Scotch and considers he wasted his years there because he was a reprobate, you know, a dissident. He was someone who railed against school. He lived the closest to it and was always late. Mm. But uh, it's taken him a lifetime to have the regret sink in. And the regret is lost opportunity. He, he didn't like learning. And uh, perhaps he found that there was enough learning to be done at home. Yeah, right. Well, with a father like you, I, I can imagine there would be. But was he the eldest of your, your four? No. Where did he fit? Oh, he was number two. The oldest one is now 39. Okay. Uh, lying in a hospital in Brisbane, recovering from a, a thyroid um, wow. condition that's been dealt with. And she's in recovery. Okay. So she's, uh, she announced many years ago to me that she was um, a gay lady. Sure. And we'd never picked it. My wife and I never picked it. Yeah. Never in a million years. And I took her to London because we had some business in London. It was a tradition whenever I took one of the kids away on to work with us that we always had a, a nice meal on the last night. 
before returning home, and her choice was, of all places, the steakhouse at the Savoy, okay. which at that time was run, I still think it might be, by uh, the, the mad chef, one who yells and shrieks at everyone. Gordon Ramsay. Gordon Ramsay. Okay. So we went there. She sat there, midway through the meal, she said to me, and she would have been in, in her mid early early 20s at okay. that stage, she said, I want you to do something. I want you to go home tomorrow and I want you to persuade um, my mother, my wife, Anne, that, uh, to accept that she had a gay partner and was intending to get married. And she was frightened about her mother's response. Now, the thing about children is her mother was com- quite com- surprised, only because she'd been blindsided. She wasn't shocked. Um, she was just surprised that she hadn't picked it. She was surprised that there'd been nothing in her previous 22 years that gave rise to any thought that she might be. Yep. Anyway, uh, Anne accepted it. We still, have, she, we still have a very good relationship with her. And they've had uh, an IVF child. Wow. So they, she got married to that, to that person yes. she mentioned at the time? Yes, to Kate. And okay. they still married. And Kate had, was the birth mother. Wow. And uh, the donor was some sports jock in uh, sports jock in Florida. Okay. So uh, I imagine the semen came in a jiffy bag. <laughs> Hopefully not a sponge or something. <laughs> Tissues. Well, that's fantastic. What a story. <laughs> You're a cracker. I'd love to know a bit about your wife and until... Today, when you came around, yeah, there was there was no mention of her, not that there was ever a reason to mention her when you were throwing cricket balls at me. But, yeah, how did you meet her and how's life oh, been? Oh, we met when I was 15. So she was – I went to the boys' school, St. Patrick's College, it was at the time, St. Patrick's High School. Yeah. And she was a boarder at the adjacent girls' school called Mercy College. A boarder, did you say? A boarder, yes. Yep. She was – so you couldn't, um, sheep in those days wouldn't ride you home at an evening. <laughs> they weren't a legal vehicle on New Zealand roads, even then. Yeah, right. So she was a boarder, and uh, there was a move by the school authorities to coalesce the schools over time. And so they decided to amalgamate certain classes in the latter stages of school. So what we then knew as Form 6 and 6A. So when you were 16, 17, so I joined the history class. I always had an interest in history. At that stage, you had the French rights, the student rights in Paris, and it was always of interest. I had a, a very good uncle, old Vincent, who was a bank manager in Auckland, and he would send me, or send my father, every quarter, 13 copies of Time magazine. And given the fact that we had nothing to read other than going to the library, I had I devoured the language of Time magazine and all of the topics it used, and it used to write beautifully discursive articles and great use of language, something that was completely foreign, unavailable generally. There was an alternative to Beano magazine and Hotspur. So we, I joined the history class, and Anne was part of it. 
So you're at an age when you're starting to show some interest in, in, in the opposite sex. Yep. And so I had a nodding acquaintance with her and her friends. There was only five of us boys and 22 girls. And the nun who ran it, Sister Jerem, absolutely adored, adored the challenges that the male brain presented her in terms of arguments and logic and pushback. Because most of the girls were subservient. They'd been pushed into being sponges or sops for, for knowledge. Yeah. But then there was no reason to debate. So Anne's memory of those early days was it was a one-way street between five boys in an open debate uh, with a nun, and the rest of the girls were simply on the jury. Right, flies on a wall. Yes. Mm. That's her memory. So we got to know each other through church meetings and school socials and so on. So the relationship started about 15, 16, maybe 16 and a half. Yeah. And has been in the relationship. We didn't get married till late 20s. Okay. Uh, we then travelled after we left New Zealand. We actually travelled for a year and spent time in the US and all and right through Europe. And hired, did the typical thing of hiring a van, buying a dumpy van from a relative and giving, who, who sold us all her problems. I will never forgive Miss Komen for that, for that behaviour. <laughs> and I learned then that just because the van was clean didn't mean it was mechanically roadworthy. Yeah. So I broke down in some very funny places. <laughs> I remember once in Austria, we had to spend time in the front yard of the Ford dealer outside Innsbruck, waiting for the parts to arrive so that the van could be repaired. And he very generously allowed us to use a shower and toilet in his workshop. And we just had to camp there waiting for the van to be restarted. Wow. It broke down an island, and I'm not a mechanic, and it was very embarrassing in a small village in Ireland. I remember going in and having a wonderful night in the pub. <laughs> and then it was time to leave, and Anne and I got in the van, and it wouldn't start. So I went back into the pub and asked if I some volunteers to push me. Well, I had eight or nine of them coming out wow. and got behind the van. They pushed me down the road, up a hill, down the next hill, and up the next one, until I finally realised I forgot to turn on the ignition. <laughs> Irish whiskey's good stuff, eh? I didn't have the heart to stop. <laughs> <laughs> they were stranded at least two miles from the pub. Oh, for not. Was this at night time? At night time. Oh, brilliant. Yes. So your wife then, you got married in your late 20s. Yes. You mentioned, and we've jumped around here quite a bit, which I've enjoyed thoroughly. I hope people are have their own mental image and picture of, of your life thus far or in all that we've talked about. But you, you shared that story before with your brother when you were in your early 20s, 21, he was 19 of sort of making quite a bit of money for the time. You then moved to, well, you moved to Australia at some point. When you got married, were you here in Australia with Anne? I got married in New Zealand. Okay. In fact, we got married in um, Timaru. And uh, in the chapel at the school. Wow. Uh, and then we 
decided to leave. And those were the days of uh, we had stringencies. You weren't allowed to leave, take your money out of New Zealand. Rob Muldoon was the Prime Minister. Overseas funds were being protected. And you weren't allowed to move. So when we left New Zealand, we left with nothing. We had to leave everything behind. Wow. What made you move? Why did you want to come to Australia? Three reasons I left. The first one was I sought better weather. The second was I wanted to play a higher standard of cricket. And the third one was I wanted to dance upon a grander stage. I wanted to have the opportunity in bigger markets to have, give life a crack. Right. So I felt that New Zealand had grown. It is only a series of islands. There is only five million people. There's a certain thinking that um, inhibits our challenges. And I just wanted, as a youngish man, just to give life a go in a grander way. So we arrived, we went for a, a wander around the world for a year and came back and settled in Sydney. Yeah. I was going to say, if you settled in Melbourne for the better weather, I'm not no, sure no. your uh, head, head was on well. There's nothing, no, there's nothing wrong with Melbourne weather, <laughs> other than the fact that midweek cricket for, for six of the last eight weeks has been cancelled because of rain. <laughs> other than that, it's brilliant. I mean, oh, it's nice and sunny today and it was pouring rain yesterday with a bit of hail. Well, that's what I'm remonstrating with the authorities here because they're cancelling now earlier and earlier based on the basis of forecasts. Right. Well, the only people, there are very few professions where you've got the license to be wrong and retain a license to operate. One is a doctor. Doctors offer nothing else but opinion. And the other is the weather forecaster. I'm far more accurate looking out my window and predicting what will happen than any forecaster. But we're now having cricket days cancelled as early as Monday at noon for a game that doesn't start till 10.30 on Wednesday on the basis of a forecast. Wow. And I'm, I'm coming to a stage where I may have to migrate yet again to find better weather, a higher standard of cricket and a bigger stage upon which to dance. Beautiful, three beautiful points. So did you find that in Sydney or was the cricket like there? Cricket, I know the weather's good. Cricket was excellent. I, I remember and it really underscored me, to me the difference in cultures between, between New South Wales and Victoria. When I first landed in Sydney, it was a, Monday, it was a Friday afternoon. So I went up to Moor Park. Moor Park is that area right next to the SCG. And there was a comp, they're running suburban competitions up there. So I walked up there, took my whites with me in case, and um, I, I approached the teams and they said, Who are you? And what do you want? And I expressed, and I, they said, What can you do? I said, I can bat a bit and bowl a bit. And I enjoy fielding. So they said, All right, get changed, you're playing. Like that. Brilliant. First, no waiting, nothing. Yeah. Absolute embrace. The difference was a year later when I came to Melbourne, having sold a business and had to operate outside New South Wales under, under a treaty by agreement, I went down to the commercial comp in Faulkner Park in, uh, here in Melbourne. Yeah. Same thing. I took my whites on the off chance. There were five or six different teams playing on three different grounds. And I said, uh, they said, what do you do? And I said, I can bat a bit and bowl a bit and I enjoy fielding. And they said, um, 
we'll get back to you. That was it. The whole attitude was different. There was, there was no instant embrace. Yeah. There was no, well, have a, give it a go. Two of the teams were short that day, mm. but they still wouldn't take you on. You had to go through, turn up at the club, register, play some time in the nets, we'll have a look at you, and then in the passage of time, we'll give you a game, possibly. Now, the irony is I ended up playing for Air New Zealand <laughs> in the mercantile comp. Okay. So it, it, to me, illustrates the difference between the two cities. One was the mistress instantly embracing warm, attractive, invigorating and engaging. The other one was the wife. <laughs> Shout out to Anne. <laughs> Judgmental, distanced, all the time disapproving. And you had to be like a puppy dog in that sense to always gain or garner favour. So it was just the difference in, in one was family life, the other was fun. Mm. I miss Sydney enormously. And we legally can return and now operate again because it was only a five-year exclusion. It's been but, many years, I'm guessing, then? Oh, yes, it's been. I mean, I got, we got in a car, and um, which we bought from the proceeds of the sale, and we came south and uh, learned just how disreputable real estate agents are the world round. <laughs> we, we were told we were getting an apartment which we'd booked by phone with an agent in the the reasonably upmarket suburb of Armadale. Mm -hmm. When we got here, we found it was Balaclava. Okay. And Balaclava is, the, is in, the, in the middle, absolute middle of the Jewish belt. Sure. So we're living in a, in a Jewish community. And I lived there for two years and absolutely adored it. I was lucky enough to live in a, in a flat where in, in an apartment block of nine. They're all Jews except I was the only Gentile. Uh, the man underneath me, Stan Robe, who unfortunately has died today, was a sock designer. And he would entertain me in his library, beautiful library he had. And he taught me the double standards of the Jewish race. <laughs> it was the most wonderful, evocative, talking to a, a, a Catholic who had lost any belief in the certainty of anything. I could understand just how universal the, 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 the dis, disappointment was. And he, he was extremely encouraging. He was extremely positive, but he was honest, honest about everything in life. And he was a breath of fresh air. My daughter, Hannah, would sit on this bottom step waiting for them to come out and offer and proffer a biscuit. <laughs> So they were wonderful times. Uh, we only moved because my wife purloined a cheque that I received for the sale of a newspaper to the Truth Group, and she went and used it to buy and put it as a deposit on the house in Hawthorne, and I was told then I was moving. Right. So this was when you were in Balaclava, though? Yes. So then what brought you from Sydney to Melbourne? Sale of a business. Right. So was that publishing? Because you yes. mentioned you did that in New yes. Zealand. Yes. Okay. Publishing of books. No, that was publishing, publishing of it was a publishing of a new of newspapers. Okay. Uh, particularly for the events industry. Okay. And it was uh, we had only been running six or so months, and we had an offer for it, so we took it. Wow. It allowed us to recapitalise. Yeah. 
and not have to worry about uh, trying to persuade Mr Muldoon to release funds from New Zealand. Yeah, right. And so then did you, for the five, was it five years that you weren't able to do a similar business, like a cease of trade agreement? That's it. We were locked out of New South Wales only that five years. So we just operated in Victoria. Right. So so that brought you here? Yes. Worse quality or perhaps uh, fondness of of cricket down here or the community aspects? Cricket has always been uh, one of the great joys of my life. I mean, I, I still go to every ground I possibly can. I still watch. I mean, my wife will churl uh, at the thought that she had to spend her part of her honeymoon in the grandstand at, at the Basin Reserve in Wellington on the coldest possible day watching Bish and Beatty. <laughs> Bowl tortuously slow at an average New Zealand side, and then that was bad enough. But then going to Napier to watch the second test <laughs> on your honeymoon, on our honeymoon. And you said you explained the wife then just before as being uh, what was it? Uh, I, nagging. I, I, I think no, 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 I never <laughs> used the word nagging. You said you had to be the puppy dog. Sounds like you got a very good... uh... There there have been elements of my behaviour that may have been seen as reprehensible, Mm -hmm. selfish, um, and uh, for which I've had to pay a very high price. Well, that's good. The relationship has endured because of mutual tolerance. Right. And there's a very famous quote I love to repeat, and that is, we were asked once why we didn't divorce. And it was simply because we never thought of it at the same time. <laughs> so is that the secret then? Oh, I'm sure she's had many moments in which she's and her friends have often referred to what they call their secret funds or running away money. Mm. So it, it is, all relationships have rub, rub, have rub of the green and ebb and flow. Yeah. But uh, it's yes, it's her time at cricket grounds that have probably been the most problematic. Yeah. Even when we went to England, uh, she now and she, she'll be able to tell you the difference between, say, Headingley and Trent Bridge, uh, which most most women who don't like cricket wouldn't be able to tell you. Yeah. Uh, they wouldn't be able to describe um, Lords or the Oval or the distinction between the two. Mm. So it's uh, cricket remains a love. It's just unfortunate that I, I, um, I love to play it five days a week, but I mean, there are other old obligations. Yeah, right. Well, you you still do it quite well at the age you are now, which is well, very I, admirable. You obviously took I, care of yourself. And, no, I had a hiatus period. I had thirty five years away. Really? From from what age were you not playing? Stopped playing about mid thirties. Yep. Okay, so only recently, in the last sort of few years, that yeah, I, I came back t- two years ago. I had the view that I didn't want to give up. I used to get a staff member, yeah, um, lovely Munda, who I would say, "All right, the rest of your shift today, we're going across the road, and you're going to bowl to me." So <laughs> he had to uh, bowl in the nets. There are nets in various grounds close to the house, mm-hmm. so there have been times when I've. Um, borrowed staff members or inveigled them into uh, <laughs> supporting my, my comeback. And so I'll, I'll pick on anyone to, uh, to, uh, to play with. And that's why I enjoy those Saturdays in the Nets. I mean, even though it's getting harder for Paul Francis, mm. 
and wayward bulls now have a price if we don't we can't commandeer a fielding site. <laughs> it's difficult to have to retrieve at sixty and seventy meter shots. Yeah, it's a very high price to pay for a wayward bull. Or for a good shot. No, a wayward bull. You pay not only just into the thought that is wayward, but the retrieval is going to cost you about ten minutes. <laughs> well, it's all good exercise. I, I mean, you joked before about your wife and not thinking about divorce at the same time. But in your life, I think you, you said you married in your late twenties. You're now seventy one, seventy one this year. Did you say? Hmm. Was there was there ever a time that you you were close to divorce, or how has your relationship been? And it strikes me. I just want to add to this for people who are obviously listening. You mentioned communication skills before being something that is lacking these days. And it occurs to me right now that we're having this conversation and people will be listening, but you and I are almost locked in eye contact. And it's not something that's very common, I find, these days. I've always been, I think, quite good at maintaining eye contact, but it's not something that yeah, is is common. People tend to, you know, look around or, you know, we've got our phones these days. It's quite easy to be distracted. So all of that said, I just feel like, yeah, maybe your communication skills were, were a key to your marriage remaining, but love to hear your thoughts on it. It is the capacity to say sorry. It's as simple as that. <laughs> it's, it's to realise that at the end of the day, if you've made a prat of yourself, the easiest way to deal with it is to say, is say sorry. And it's, it's an extraordinary position to be in, but it's, sometimes when you're in a cul-de-sac, you've got to admit it and ask the other parties to accept the, the, that apology and move on. Yeah. You as well, you shared obviously that story about missing Christmas Day and I'm sure many sorries were said and, and obviously not accepted uh, even to this day. But at the top of the conversation, you mentioned carrying the baggage of life or through time. Was there, you know, a, a time where maybe the sorry wasn't enough and I realise actions need to follow that and I'm, I'm sure you know that as well. But when was maybe a darkest time, whether it was in a relationship with, with your wife or with a family member or a friend or, or in business? Could you maybe recount a time? Oh, Probably, you know, business is, is, is up and down. So you, you make a mistake in business, is recovery. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's, there's, there's no need for suicide. There's no need for turning away. I mean, if you have a business failure, you just simply dust yourself down and, and have another crack. Mm -hmm. On a personal level, I thought probably the lowest point of life, one of the, one of the low points was what I call it, it's a modern phenomenon which I've witnessed almost universally. And that is almost all mothers are bullied by their children. Mm -hmm. It's almost imperceptible. It's not necessarily malicious or deliberate. But the bullying is expectation. The bullying is turning up late for meals habitually, missing appointments, just you could, if it was a standard relationship, if it was a relationship with any other party, you'd call it contemptuous behaviour. And mothers tolerate it. Mothers uh, absolutely find it offensive, but they smile through it. And there was one Christmas when all of my children, all four, were due at the house for lunch 
uh, at about 11 o'clock-ish. And they had pulled up early and then decided that they would all collectively go and visit some friend. And so we were left looking after dogs and looking after babies and looking after everything else. And then they were gone for, and they were hours and hours late. Mm-hmm. They just got, they just expected that we would wait on them. And to me, we had given a lifetime to, to these kids and they were adults now. So it was a breaking point for me. So I sat down and sent them all a text on Christmas Day, mid-morning, and I resigned as their father. That was it. And the shockwave from that I'm still feeling today. I just wanted to have a complete reset. Now, it's taken me 10 to 12 years to have cordiality with three, and I still don't have contact with the fourth. Anne has contact and cordiality with all four. And I wrote a play about it. And it was called, the play's called Deadheading the Children. And it's a one-act play. It was, in fact, three acts, but it's what's called a one-hander, which means only one actor right. plays it. And it's set in a small chapel in Abbotsford in here in Melbourne in which the chapel's completely empty and it's my soliloquy or talk to God. And it's, a, it's, it's really in reference to his failings, God's failings, not mine. The fact that it's, but it's essentially about trying to break oppression, trying to break a pattern of behaviour. How do you deal with deeply personal issues and come out the other side? And it's and the propensity for risk. Now I've written the play. I think it's a, it's been read by two or three people, but Anne, my wife, has struck a deal with me that it's not ever to be any longer seen by any third party or published in her lifetime. So that's the agreement we have. So deadheading the children remains in a secret location in a sealed box ready for publication, perhaps never, perhaps well beyond my death, but certainly not in Anne's lifetime. Well, there's a second one I did where I was blamed by the widow of my best friend, Derek Markham, committed suicide. And I've looked for a long time as to why men in their 60s commit suicide. And I didn't see it coming. And she blames me for not seeing it coming. And I've written a play there where, again, it's in the same box. It's called Wave Over Limestone. That whole principle that men, particularly in their 60s, just simply are worn down by the events of life, the disappointment in life, and as you get older, the inability to get over disappointment. And when finally the collective disappointments in the end snuff out the light of life, but what is actually the turning point for it? That's what I'm exploring in that particular play. Mm. And that is... Is it one thing or is it a thousand cuts? 
Uh, is it the smoke of one sword or is it a thousand nicks? Do we die slowly with everyone each day, but survive to the next cut? And at some point, as Derek did when he went and obtained a device on the internet, helium balloon, and ended his life because there had been, we had been close at times. We actually had spent time through a very difficult patch for him. Uh, we had gone, we decided we want to explore the Baja Peninsula. So when we arrived in uh, San Diego, I had two of my children with me, and he just had himself and his wife. We agreed to hire a vehicle, and when I got there, I discovered that he had allowed his license to lapse, so I was left as the sole driver, which didn't impress me. So I got a week driving on very narrow, broken-down roads on the Baja Peninsula, headed down to Cabo San Lucas, expecting to be there in seven days, spending time along the way and enjoying the journey. And we pulled in on the second night to a motel, and a phone call came through from, from Melk, in which his daughter informed the parents, Derek and Cheryl, that their son had taken had a hot shot and died. A hot shot? Yes, heroin. Right. So the oh. primal scream at five o'clock in the afternoon of beautiful, serene, setting sun in Mexico. My children can't talk about it to this day. They won't mention it. If you, I raise it, they, they blanket and walk off. Mm. The primal screen was searing, absolutely seared into every part of my body and brain. The sobbing and the, and the consequences were horrific. So I got them to a motel. I then had to ring and in here in Melbourne, and we had to work through the night, both comforting, I had to comfort them over there, and Anne had to work through the night to get a light plane to fly in the early hours of the morning to Guadalajara, back to Los Angeles to get them back to Melbourne to deal with the consequences of David's death. Wow. That was searing. So there have been some low points. Now, he didn't commit suicide for many years after that. Yeah. But he did choose to do so on above the beach which his ashes had been scattered. So down a wire river. So it's a great sadness. So these are the sadness. So there's been some very, very low points and sadnesses that for which there's no explanation. Thank you for sharing both of those situations, periods in your life, quite tough I'm sure, and obviously still living with ramifications of them or the baggage of the past, as you mentioned. So uh, the hardest part is dealing with every day there is potentially an issue where that is the framework or, or backstory to the negotiation. So... I've held the position for all of these years with the, the sacking of the children. Mm -hmm. uh, it's for them to absorb the lesson. 
it's for me to understand that it needed to be done. I don't regret it. I regret its consequences. And it's had consequences of, of uh, deleterious consequences for both all of the children and for Anne. Uh, but I wouldn't take it back because the oppression and the bullying and the life that was our life before that intervention was more horrendous. Right, from all four of you? No, they, they were impervious to all of this. I take the view, and I've said to Anne, I said, if I had the opportunity to produce that play today, and who would I choose as the leader, the actor to do it? I'd have someone like a, a Welsh actor who had character on stage, um, uh, so, someone who was an older man who could carry it off. And I'll guarantee you that I could put it into Drury Lane, 1,600 seats in Drury Lane, and I would have every one of them at the end of it waving their pearl necklaces at the stage, saying, there but for the grace of God go I. Why didn't I have that courage? Well, it's, it's a universal oppression. Mothers suffer forever for being mothers. Fathers can get above it a, a little bit, but mothers are bullied subtly. They are oppressed and, and, and downtrodden because they accept that they can't escape this role of being a mother. But children forget. forget. Children grow up in households for 15, 16, 17, 18 years and the nursemaid the whole way. Mm. There's no trigger for them becoming adults. So they don't move through some sort of course that allows them to become an adult and have an adult relationship with their mother or father. What was your relationship like with your mother? Do you remember? I, I have a number of regrets. Mm. Uh, we, were a, we were a generation that left our homes at 17 or 18 and never came back. Mm. We just, that was it. That was the independence that once embraced, you, you flew like a godwit. And you flew like a godwit for 9,000 miles all the way back to Alaska or to Russia for the breeding season before you return to the, the salt brush and the flats around New Zealand. You exhilarated in flight. You were, you were Icarus. You, you, you just had this sense of youth and vibrancy and you were going to live forever. And going home was fuddy-duddy. Right. So you never did. So my regret was I, when my parents died, I wasn't there. I was away. So that's a regret. Sure. I felt, looking back, my brother bullied my mother. Uh, not violently, but in an aggressive way, and I should have intervened. Looking back now, I'd intervene, and I didn't. And her, her life was the lesser as a result. I had a good relationship with my father, but he, remember I said he was quite elderly when I was born. Sure. So when I was in my 20s, into his 70s, yeah. and 70 then is, is like 85 or 90 today. So yeah. he said to me very clearly, he handed the baton to me at the age of 17 or 18, and I remember him clearly saying, we need you to look out for your siblings now. Yeah. So he handed me the role of 
looking after my sisters and brother and being responsible for the parenting of them, if you like. Sure. And I accepted that. And I remember when they died, they were reasonably impoverished. I remember the, when my mother finally died and the will was read and the, the estate was divvied up, I think we each got $5,000. That's all. Uh. And I remember gifting that to my youngest sister who was unmarried at the time and having troubles and so on. I started to accept the edict that my father had left and asked. And I've tried to continue that even today, even though they, everyone bar me still lives in New Zealand and it's been difficult for the last two years. Mm-hmm. But generally I've gone back there three or four times every year and I'm now dealing with the widow of my dead sister. Yeah. And I think he's quiet. My other sister's now divorced, and I think quietly he's such a needy man, he may very well be lining up the other sister for a marriage. Wow. What a, what a family, what a situation. I mean, you mentioned, yeah, the bullying of, of your wife by, by your kids in a way that's probably not cognizant. You know, they're not aware of it. I mean, she will never argue, she will never admit that she saw it as bullying. Sure. Uh, Subtle things. She would call it disappointment, sadness. She would give it pejorative words, which were neutralized. Sure. And and you, as the father, are observing it and and just calling it as what you think it is bluntly is bullying. Yeah. and, And you've got to make a choice, both as a male and a female. You have to make a choice about what levels of unreasonableness you'll tolerate or what are tolerable mm-hmm. as opposed to levels of how you, what you will tolerate, but what's tolerable and what's not tolerable. And then how do you deal with it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I've, I've explained that I had my grandson live with me for some years. Now, he would watch, he would sit with me in the, one of the computer rooms and he would watch his screen, I would watch mine, and I would look after him. And that would go on for you know, hours every day. Now, I learned very quickly that to get him down from the screen to go in and have a bath or to go and have his evening meal because his mother wanted him to do something else, that you had to work, and this is the difference today, you had to work on logic, persuasion, inducement, encouragement, and give him a solid reason. So the first thing was talking to him in a sotto voce voice. That's the sotto voce voice. Soft, very soft voice. And you speak down at his head-to-head level because we've got eye contact now. Not at, not stand above him and order him mm. as a sergeant major on a parade ground. So, and even kids age two and three understand logic. They understand inducements. And his mother would just barrel in, act as the mother, and order him, and he would just truculently decide to resist. All young boys will truculently decide to resist when ordered to do something that's against their current desire. So there was no subtlety or persuasion. So it's those things that are needed. You can't expect to impose your attitudes, your mores, and your standards on another party. Mm. The key thing is to actually understand what drives them 
and then impart a logic to dealing with an accord or middle ground. It requires effort. It requires an understanding of circumstance, training, tradition, language, body movements, and touch. And it caused enormous rows, even when we're all together as an intergenerational family, because there was a sense of I was usurping the mother's role. Or I was deliberately very encouraging this young boy to very get a bit lippy with his mother, which then the mother would complain to my wife and the whole thing became a battleground. That's taken two more years uh, with now young Josh is close to five. His mother's look back and you watch how she's handling situations now. It's amazing to think that she's only acknowledging these methods years after having failed with her own. And it takes, and that, and that's the thing that you can take from something. You don't need praise. I don't want to be praised. I just want to have a young boy who's excited by life, mm-hmm. excited by potential, who has a lot of fun, and in the end thinks it's all his own idea. There's nothing wrong with someone thinking they've owned it always, that it was their idea, and did you know, Pop, you could do this if you did that, mm. and that's fine. It maybe it's taken a greater maturity on my part over life right, to reach a point where you don't have to own success. You can just be invigorated by the success in someone else. Mm. And if someone else is successful as a result of a word, a thought, an assist, fine. That you never get a byline for it, doesn't, doesn't matter. Because you've got your own joy and the joy of your own thoughts. And always remember, in an argument, you may think you won an argument, but I have the final thought. <laughs> I love it. I, I feel like we could end there, but I, I would love to just pick a little more, if you don't mind. Uh, you've helped raise your grandson, Josh who is five and not to lump pressure on him. Yes. But hopefully he doesn't bully his mother in the subsequent decades and and in his life. I am aware in this conversation that I have certainly done this to my mum as recently as last week, in fact, and I probably should give her a call after this conversation. I do see my mum most weeks, go around there for dinner and have a really good relationship with her, you know, 98% of the time. But there's, yeah, those, those occasions where, where we don't. And I feel like we probably are quite similar in a lot of ways and bring it out in each other. But yeah, last week was an example of that when she was actually here visiting, just popped in. And uh, what was, you know, a really nice hour or so ended in a not so nice little time. So thank you for being a mirror for me today and making me think about and reflect on, on that, Morris. But I guess for you, in raising Josh, you've got these four kids and you said before, you don't regret the, I guess, the text message, but you regret the consequences of doing so. And it's interesting to me that sometimes, you know, making a decision and then the outcome, they're two separate things. So you can make a really good, what you think is a really good decision and it can still be a good decision based on all the facts that you had at the time. But once you do that, the outcome after is completely out of your control, ultimately. 
It is, but it's a ripper play. <laughs> I'm keen to I'm keen to read the script and and see it at some point. But that idea of you know you wouldn't take that that back that text. I'm curious to know roughly what it is you said, but obviously you 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 know separated from your kids, so to speak. Now they were fired. They were fired. Sorry, you yep. fired your children. Well, I I can't fire them, but I resigned as if I of the course text, in effect. Use the words, and I hereby resign as your father. And did you give them a path of recourse you felt, or was it, I mean, you've talked as well about being able to say sorry in, in a marriage, in a relationship. Uh, you're on good terms with three, and your wife Annie's on good terms with all of them. But, yeah, what was the, the path of recourse for at least the three that you're in communication with in present time? Well, in in the case of Gemma, it was the fact that she had to come home and live with us. Yeah. And the fact that I encouraged it and made this suggestion. So if you've got someone in life who's in trouble, it, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, it, it is a matter of you offer the hand of friendship and you embrace someone in such a total way that you invite them back into your house, even though she was an irascible, difficult... She had to understand, you think about it from this context, she's lost her husband and her father. There's got to be a reason. It can't be that dopey. Oscar Wilde once said, to lose a wife is unfortunate. To lose two is carelessness. So if you've lost two of the key relationships in your life, it may be your problem. Right. It may be just you're such a difficult, acerbic, self-centered person that you actually cannot deal with compromise. And I later discovered that one of the reasons her husband left was simply because she simply couldn't reach a middle ground in any argument with anyone. Right. So when someone is king of their roost, that's fine if you can get away with it. But if you can't get away with it, what are the consequences for you? Now, I wouldn't see anyone in the street. If I walked out the front here now and there's someone in trouble, we'll help. That's the way my humanity works. That's the way my attitude to life works. Yeah. And I don't care about the past. I demonstrated that despite firing the kids, when one got into serious difficulties, she had a home and her grandson, and he's the most joyous person. And my memories of him are warm. And even now, I still see him two or three times a week, and he's an absolute joy to be with. Yeah. He's inspirational to be with. And it's, it's an absolute important part of my life. And so I'm going to benefit from re-embracing the mother. Of course. So my, I have a good relationship with the others because they've all been, through circumstance, been forced to retrace steps. And I haven't been, uh, I haven't held to the actual text as being forever. I've never retracted it. I've never said since that I am your, that I've reinstated myself into the so-called status. Yeah. But I've dealt with things 
so as not to exacerbate it and give them a chance to regrow. Right. So that's the reason why the play sits. I mean, if I had my choice, I would have published it and be in every theatre every night it was put on and enjoy the experience and I would find it uplifting that others had got some joy out of someone taking a stand. Yeah. But so my creative side has been by choice suppressed for the betterment of the rehabilitation of the children and my wife's mental health. And I, I don't have a problem with that. For eventually we'll all be dead and the play will still be alive. Well said. Just before we move on, I can't help but ask, because I would love to be a father one day, 29, 30 in a couple of months, single, so no kids as far as I know. Uh, haven't met any, but um, of my own, of course, I met plenty of children over the years. But have you reflected perhaps on your role as a father throughout the years that maybe could have changed the, your your children's demeanour toward their mother? Do you feel like you maybe could have done, not to say you did a horrible job in raising them, but do you think you could have done perhaps a better job in raising humans who didn't disrespect their mother, if that makes sense? The disrespect is subtle. So... I'm not certain. I mean, when I look back on my life, I was born of an era where I didn't have much to do with the kids in their infancies. Mm-hmm. And my role as a father was very hands on from the ages of sort of three, four, and five, and, and so on. So the first couple of years were very much, they were the preserve of their mother. Could I have done anything differently? No, because I, this is. This is one of those universals. It's a universal problem. It's not particular to my children and their attitude to their mother. Yeah. They would, on reflection, I'm sure, see its context if they were into self-analysis, balance and reasoned argument. But it doesn't suit your age to make admissions because number one, reflection is not a strong point. You're not reflecting. I mean, your only reflections about your own relationship with your mother is a result of this conversation today. If we hadn't had this conversation, it wouldn't be a moment's reflection on the, the dissonance that was clear in your last meeting with your mum. Sure. It would just be, well, that's what happened. And it may even be pushback was her fault anyway. She misread or misconstrued something. Yeah. She ate my brother's dinner. As stupid as that sounds. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, and, that, and that's the way it is. And you, children expect to get away with it because they reason she's going to be mum tomorrow and she can't get out of it. And mums won't, but fathers will. And that essentially is the difference. I, I didn't act hard enough in my early years with my brother when he arced up and upset my mother continuously. Yep. That is both continually and continuously, for it just never seemed to go away. And I, I, I regret that. 
I don't regret the fact that I, I intervened, created a situation and reset the bone of what had become an uncomfortable setting. Yeah. So I have no regrets about that and I would encourage anyone else to do it because sometimes you've got to face the reality of your situation and it's brutal. Appreciate that. It happens everywhere. There was a time when the Ukrainians woke up in recent times and realised that someone had invaded their country. There are times in all our lives when we can turn a blind eye or we can ignore something or we do something about it. And the issue for all of us is, do you want to do something about it or is it just a shrug of the shoulders, a turn the reverence of the head and you walk away and say, it's not my problem. Well, no one else was going to fix it, so someone had to do it. Mm. Had I walked away a second time, not having protected my mother, and in this case not more my wife, I wouldn't live with myself. At what point would I say, was I going to do something about it? Or was I always going to be just someone who stood in the kitchen and said, isn't it sad? And now it's too bad. Mm. And they've all got to deal with the reality of what happens. And I don't regret it, no. Would I retract it? No. Uh, would I prefer not to have had the last period of time where I've got to deal with it? Of course. But I have. And it's called deadheading the children. Deadheading the children. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. And yeah, maybe would love to see that play one day, but it's under lock and key. Whilst my wife is alive. That's the, that's the arrangement. Long live Anne. No, and... Well, it depends <laughs> on your point of view. <laughs> Man, I've really enjoyed this conversation today. I've got a few more questions before we finish off, if that's all right. Thank you again for your time. Uh, I was at a a cooking class a couple of nights ago and there were these cards that we, the conversation starters and one of them was, and it's a bit of a riff on a question that I used to ask early on when I was doing the podcast and I've sort of stopped in the last year or so. And the initial question was, what is your definition of success? But the riff and the extension of this question on the card on, on Sunday night, which I really liked and I wanted to pose to you was, what is your definition of success? And to that end, who is the most successful person you know? Okay. Definition of success is that going to bed contented that you've done everything you possibly can in the day to achieve what you need to achieve. If it requires you to get up the next day and do more, so be it. But you can't go to bed at night without knowing that you've expended every muscle, every sinew, every cell of your being to focus to achieve the outcome that you set for yourself, no matter what that is, whether it's personal, relationship-based, business-wise, sporting-wise, you must be replete. There's nothing left unsaid, untouched or untried. It must be absolute exhaustion. That's the measure of success. I love it. And to that end, 
who fits that definition? Who's the most successful person that you, you know that fits that? All of the people who embrace that ethos. All of them. Yeah. And it might represent, I've got no idea, 1%, 100 of one, one hundredths of 1%. It's attitude for that's the difference. You can only make a difference with sheer commitment. And commitment is a matter of you've still got to balance all the things that you require to live in a day and never lose sight of the objective. I do it by simply writing the note to myself every day. First thing after coffee is a piece of paper and a pen, and the objective is restated on that piece of paper. It sits in my pocket, and that's what must be completed by the end of the day. And if it's not, it's not a crime, not a sin, it's not regret. You've got to restate it the next day and make sure it's done that day and every day until it's done. That's, and it doesn't matter whether it's the pursuit of religion, the perfect idea, the writing of something, a relationship issue, the repair of something. It is just simply the focus. Marvellous. Well said, thank you. The reason why I wanted to start this podcast was because I listened to many and on many of these big podcasts with highly successful celebrities, entrepreneurs, they would ask that question and the answer from these top performers would always be quite similar. And I thought, what if I asked the everyday person, my dad, the next door neighbor, some mad bastard I met at the cricket nets over the road? So to you, Morris, I would love to ask, what advice would you give to perhaps your 21-year-old self 50 years ago or even 20-year-old self if you wanted to go prior to that quarter of a million dollar period in your life? What advice would you give? There's no advice you can give a 21-year-old that they'll accept or even listen to. <laughs> For the joy of being 21 is you think you know it all. And you won't take advice. There's not a 21-year-old alive that took advice. Is even will ever contemplate taking advice. The arrogance of the 21-year-old male obviates the possibility of ever taking advice. The worst that they'll say, the best that they'll say to you is it's your opinion and stick it. And then they'll ignore you and go off and do something. Whether it's buying a car excessive speed or taking a pill that they don't know its origins. You can't give... 21-year-olds are impervious to, to teaching. 21-year-olds are impervious to advice. However, what I'd like to be is 21 with all my knowledge mm. and attitudes that I have now. And then there might be change. But that's the glory of growing up. It's the, it's the journey of learning, of learning and listening to yourself and in the end honing and minimising what you do to get to where you want to get to. And the, whatever that goal is, the goal can be anything. I sometimes go and sit with an old friend, Father John, who runs an ashram in, in Warburton. It's got seven acres on the riverbank and with a bench seat, sit on that bench seat and just talk. 
and it would be whatever he wants to talk about. And it could be anything from uh, is there a God to uh, is, there, is there a future, the climbing of the, the hills around him, anything. Or it might just be half an hour's silence. Silence is fine. But silence is what you should give to a 21-year-old because that's the only thing he hears. I love it. I'm about to turn 30. Would you give any advice to a a 30-year-old or a 30-year-old self? No. I wouldn't deign to give advice to anyone. Giving advice is a form of arrogance. You can invite someone to an idea. You can invite someone... You can move someone through song. You can take someone through a walk in the forest. It can be an uplifting spiritual experience. But advice per se is is words wasted. There's nothing that you will or won't do despite advice being proffered. 30-year-olds are just simply yesterday's (laughs) 21-year-olds. Well, I'm looking forward to being yesterday's 21-year-old and hopefully I'll make a 1971's version of a quarter of a mil in the coming year. Well, that was soon lost. <laughs> in subsequent business losses, it were presided over by my brother. But that's the fun of business. I bet. Win and you lose. And you win and you lose. And you, and you learn along the way. Mm. So it doesn't matter. The fun of life. Yeah. Morris Esmond, it's been a pleasure. You're most welcome. And there you have it, another episode of The Hope Initiative. Thank you again to Morris for indulging me in your stories, regalia, all of that. It was a pleasure to have you and I'm looking forward to future conversations. And guys, you've listened all the way through an hour and 50 odd minutes now. I would love it if you shared it with a family member or friend, someone you think will get some value out of this conversation. I'm sure there will be plenty. And until next time, keep creating your life and all the very best.